It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Elling. Coming up on episode number 38 of Sports Day Plus. At 6.30, it is the first of a two-segment chat with comedian and musician Reggie Watts about his new book, Great Falls, Montana. In a mere seconds, we're looking at the Texas-Washington matchup from the Huskies' perspective for a couple of segments with Damon Heward. I am your host, Trey Elling. You can give me a follow on Twitter, at Courtesy Wave, and do the same for ESPN Austin at 1027 ESPN. You're about to hear two different voices on this next interview, Damon Heward, and then my co-host on a different broadcasting venture, Brad Kellner. And speaking of Damon... He is a Washington alum. Uh, He started for three years at Washington, set the passing yardage record while he was there. And you're probably sleeping on just how crazy his football life has been. That includes backing Dan Marino up and Tom Brady up, winning a couple of Super Bowls. Hell, the guy is in the winemaking business with Marino now and played about eight years in the NFL. Currently, he does a number of things around the Washington football program and athletics department. That includes a, a regular podcast that he does with his brother, Brock, on YouTube, and he's nice enough to join us for a few minutes to talk about some of these things and that big-time matchup in the Sugar Bowl here in less than a week. Damon, thank you so much for the time. How you doing today? Great, Trey. Thanks for having me on, man. Thanks for all the love, bringing back the glory days, building me up, just get better with age, I guess. Well, selfishly speaking, I want to ask about the winemaking process. We may do that uh, at the end, though, but uh, for you guys in Seattle and uh, Washington State right now, Texas fans have been jacked up about this matchup since it was announced. How excited are people on the Washington end for uh, what's going to happen here on Monday night? Yeah, so excited. I mean, obviously, there's so many awesome storylines to this game. Yeah, Damon, I want to ask you, because this is Texas's first trip in the college football playoff, but Washington has been here before, back in 2016. They were a four-seed and lost to Alabama in the semifinal, but the confidence has to be a lot different, right? Like This feels like a Washington team that has a legitimate shot to win a national championship, where to me it kind of felt like, ah, it was just a big deal for UW to get there. What's uh, Is it that much of a difference for you, just kind of watching that team and watching this team? For sure. You know, that team, you know, in 2016 was a good football team. Don't get me wrong. So many of those guys still playing on Sunday. But, you know, we did get beat at home that year to USC. You know, see, we were a one-loss team. Uh, And then going down there to play Alabama, who, you know, every year seems like they were in the CFP. We are playing in the Peach Bowl in Atlanta, you know, Southeastern Conference territory. So it was kind of like, yeah, it was kind of cool to get here, dogs. And, you know, we were the four seed. And, you know, obviously this, this go around, we're the two seed, we're undefeated, you know, just such a better, more complete football team. I think top to bottom, I'd say that 2016 team maybe had a, a little bit better defense, you know, guys like Vita Vea, Buda Baker, but this defense has really come on, especially the second half of the season. And, and obviously this offense is just, so, it's so much more talented with the fireworks with all the receivers and Michael Penix and company. So um, yeah, I think there definitely is a lot more confidence here uh, coming into the CFP, you know, six years, seven years later. As somebody who played the position, you set records at Washington. You had a 15 and 12 career record as a starter at the NFL level as well. And uh, your eight years in the league. What do you love about watching Penix play that position? Yeah. You know, I think when we got him, we kind of thought, you know, we're getting this amazing athlete. You know, you saw the highlights where, you know, I think they beat, was it Ohio state, you know, on that, on that, that run for the, for the touchdown, sticking the ball out. And you saw him just running all over the field, making plays. And so we thought we're kind of getting that kind of a quarterback. And really, yeah, it's, it's kind of been the opposite. I mean, he's been this guy that just 
sits in the pocket like a pro, has incredible anticipation skills and downfield accuracy. Um, and he stayed healthy, you know, for two years, which was was a tr- what was hard for him to do while he was in Indiana. So, uh, been a real pleasure to watch him, you know, play the position better than anybody that we've ever had here at the University of Washington. Quite, if I'm being honest, you know, we've had a lot of great quarterbacks over the years, from you know Warren Moon to to Jake Locker. But you know, this kid is coming here in two short years and uh, rewritten the record books and taken to the Huskies to, to heights you know we, we've never seen before. Should he win these last two? Uh, do you think Michael Penix has an NFL future, Damon? I mean, it feels like the the experts, the mock drafters out there are kind of throwing him around rounds one, two, and three. Do you feel like he's got the skill set to be successful on Sundays? Absolutely. I mean, you'll see it, you know, up close, just the way he can spin a football, um, his arm strength. And then really, when you if you're down there field level, just that anticipation uh, anticipation. And really at the end of the at the end of the day, you know, in the NFL, it's about accuracy and decision making. And, uh, I mean, he's been doing an incredible job with that. Add in his athleticism when he needs it. I think, you know, after six years of playing college football, you know, he's, he's learned, you know, when to run it, when to get down, and just, just become a really smart, complete quarterback that really bodes well for his NFL future. As much as is made at, about the Washington passing attack, and look, they had a Heisman finals to QB, the Bolitnikoff winner as well. I feel like people are sleeping a little bit on what Washington's run game has meant to this offense in the second half of the season. Just what have uh, Dylan Johnson and the Washington rushing attack meant to this team remaining undefeated to this point in the year? You know, Trey, great point. I think it's probably the reason where you can sit here and say, I think these Huskies have a legitimate chance to win this whole thing. Mm-hmm. You know, having that balance now on offense, we were we were fireworks and throwing for 500 yards a game. But, uh, and, and in 22, the weather was like perfect. We had this summer that went all the way to like almost Thanksgiving in the great Northwest. It was strange. This year, a little bit different. Mother Nature kind of did her thing. And we were forced to play in some really you know, diff- difficult games from a, you know, from, from a weather perspective with the wind and the rain and, and all that stuff. And, and you better have a good running game in November uh, in Seattle. The great Husky teams always did, and this one does now too. So that's been just a pleasant surprise. And then what also comes into play is, you know, you get down there in the red zone. And it's tough. Those those windows close really fast in the passing game. And the best red zone teams are able to run that football, especially when they get inside the five-yard line. And this Husky offense has been able to do that. So, yeah, I think Dylan Johnson, this Husky offensive line, has added an, added an element you know, to this team that really gives them a legitimate chance to win a national championship. How good is this offensive line, Damon? You talked about them a moment ago. I mean, look, they just won the Joe Moore Award last week, so so clearly yeah. they're good. But, I mean, Texas's defensive line has been one of, if not the best in all of college football this year. Is that a, a matchup that Washington fans expect to win when we get to Monday night? Well, I, I think we're pretty confident in, like, pass protection. But there's no doubt, you know, that front seven, that, you know, run defense for, for Texas is, is going to be a great challenge. It'll be the best front seven you know, that we have faced all season. So, uh, yeah, we, we got our hands full with, with uh, some of those Longhorns up front, and we know that. Um, I think our tackles are both Sunday guys for sure. Uh, like I said, I feel pretty good about pass protection. You know, know, knowing Pete Kwiatkowski the way I do, you know, not a big pressure guy as far as blitzing. I don't think he's going to want to do that against a veteran quarterback that, uh, you know, will pick up on that and spit the ball out. But, um, you know, what I do know about Pete is he makes you earn it. 
And you go back, you watch that game a year ago, you know, other than the, the kind of gimmick play we had early in the game, we were not able to kind of hit those home run shots, you know, that, that you'll see, you know, watching Husky highlights all season. And that's because uh, PK is so sound with his guys. Uh, they're where they're supposed to be, when they're supposed to be there. And they, they really make you as an offense earn it. And we know that. But those trenches, you know, it is going to be probably the one thing that, for me, I, I really am curious in watching. PK obviously meant so much to that Washington program. Not only an exceptional uh, play caller and designer, but also uh, just a great human being as well and somebody that uh, gets along really well with others too. Do you have a favorite PK memory from his time with the Huskies? Oh, man, he was just so steady. Um, you know, kind of like the mad professor. And, you know, um, I did. I you know, our, the, you know, you think of Chris Peterson and – and, and offenses and the Statue of Liberty and all those things they did with Kellen Moore and Boise. But, but really during that, you know, that, that run and that era, I mean, we were, we were kind of built around our defense. Um, and, uh, and PK was, was the professor, the mad scientist who, who put it all together. We had some great players, but like I said earlier, he just does a great job, you know, um, fundamentally, you know, I marveled at the way like we practiced uh, the way that the, the, the tackling, the attention to detail, it was just at a different level uh, than, than I'd seen before. And I, and I can only imagine, I know why the Texas success that they've had is the mastermind of Steve Sarkeesian, his play calling, his offensive wizardry, wizardry. Uh, is that the way you say it? I've been hitting the mouth <laughs> a few times. Uh, anyway, um, that, and then PK, right? I mean, these are two of the best coordinators uh, in America. And uh, you put them together and, and you're going to have a 12-1 and season and, and find yourselves right here in the CFP along with the Huskies. Talking Texas, Washington with former Huskies QB Damon Heward. Coming up, one more segment with Damon on the other side. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Elling. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Elling. just a sec we'll be continuing our conversation with damon heward washington huskies alum on the texas washington matchup here in just a couple of days in new orleans on new year's night first though i need to let you know about a friend of mine it's shocking to see but over the last year or so austin's housing market actually cooled off a little bit but guess what It looks like things are starting to turn once again. So whether you are searching for your dream home in Austin or maybe you're curious about how much your home is worth, look no further than Brian Hummel, your trusted Austin realtor with Realty One Group Prosper. Brian is more than just a realtor. He's a full-service expert overseeing your entire transaction from start to finish. He'll lead you through each step of the buying or selling process with questions answered and details explained in plain English. With over two decades in Austin, Brian has witnessed the dynamic growth and evolution of the Central Texas market, making him your valuable resource for buying, selling, and investing. As a certified real estate negotiator, Brian brings a strategic and skillful approach to bargaining. He secures the best deals, whether it's getting the highest price for the seller or the most favorable terms for a buyer. When you choose Brian Hummel as your realtor, you're not just hiring a real estate expert, you're gaining a trusted partner committed to your success. Contact Brian today at 512-619-1347. That's 512-619-1347 or log on to HummelRealtor.com. That's HummelRealtor.com. Brian Hummel with Realty One, the one you need. All right, back for one more segment with Washington Huskies alum Damon Heward. The other voice you're going to hear on this conversation is 
my co-host on a different broadcasting venture, Brad Kellner. You mentioned that the Washington defense has really studied the ship this year. The overall season numbers aren't great necessarily, but how have they improved in the second half to uh, give that side of the ball much more of a chance play in and play out? They've just been amazingly clutch. Okay, when we've needed them to step up, whether it was on fourth down like three times in the first matchup with Oregon, whether it was a game where it was blowing 35 miles an hour and Michael Penix was sick and the offense couldn't score a touchdown and it looked like we were about to go down to the Sun Devils, we get a you know 90-yard pick six return. You know, whether it's a, a you know another three and out that we had to force to get the ball back, uh, you know, in that championship game to, to go down for the winning drive and and make that thing happen. Like this defense, you're right. They kind of bend at times, but man, they do not break when, 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 it, when the game is on the line and uh, just been so fun watching them. I think they're healthier than they've been all season. Uh, Thule, our big D tackle in the middle, you know, was kind of dealing with a knee all year. You really saw down the stretch, what he meant to that defensive line when he was in there and then in the championship game against Oregon, we had two of our safeties back that had really been out for, you know, a couple months. So, um, yeah, the numbers, maybe not perfect, but you break it down and you watch how clutch they've been on third down, on fourth down, and in the red zone, you kind of, you know, you raise your, you raise your eyebrows and go, okay, yeah, let's, let's not just look at the stats here. These guys are pretty good. Uh, I'd love to ask you about Kalen DeBoer. What a job he's done. Like the the total 360 that the UW football program has undergone over the last like five years when Chris Peterson had things going really well. And I know his last couple of years weren't as great as the playoff type of years, but still he was regarded as one of the best coaches in college football. And then to go to Jimmy Lake, who just, it it felt like, all right, things were just going to pick up exactly where Peterson left off. And then for that, just two-year run, COVID was obviously one of them, but 2021 was a disaster for y'all. And it felt like the program just was in such a horrible spot. And then Kalen DeBoer, year one, I mean, we're Texas fans, right? Like, it's taken us four coaches to figure out how to turn things back around. Year one, DeBoer wins 11 games, and then year two, here's Washington 13-0 in the college football playoff. Like, what can you say about the job that he's done up there? I mean, this guy is unbelievable. Um, you know, in a, in a profession where there's just so many wild cards um, and people, you know, there's so much going on in college football. This guy is like one of the most genuine human beings I've ever been around. Um, just has this calm, cool, collected demeanor. Um, trust his staff so much. Uh, and, and the way he delegates, um, it's just different than I've been around. And it, you, you see that in the way it's like carried over to his team, kind of the way they play. No moment is too big. They're always just calm cool, collected. Uh, they play their heart out. Um, you know, we have 10 guys, nine guys in this program that have been at the university of Washington for six years through all through coach Pete, through the mess of Jimmy Lake. And now here with Kalen DeBoer. And I think a lot of those guys after the 21 season wanted to jump ship, but no, this, this guy's come in here just kind of like, you know, brought everybody together and just led in in a way during a time so differently. And everyone's bought in. And character always wins. I don't care what level. This is a man of high character. And then when recruiting or bringing kids in from the transfer portal, um, 
you would just want your son to play for this man. Mm-hmm. And, and we just got all these character kids that have bought in uh, to a guy that, like I said, is beyond genuine. And then obviously um, just a winner, just a winner, just flat out wins. You go back to, I don't care what level, all this guy does is win and winning is contagious. And when you think you're going to do it, no matter what the circumstance at whatever, whatever's going on in this game, um, because you can look to that sideline, to that man in charge who steers the ship. That's why we're 12, 13 and 0 and on our way to maybe 15. What changed for Washington? Wins or wins? You guys are here because you went 13 and 0. But before the first Oregon game, it was beat down after beat down after beat down. And then like, I think the largest margin of victory for Washington in the second half of the season was like 10 against yeah. USC. So yeah. look, you take the wins and Hey, I, I think you'll probably argue that it's good to be able to win in blowouts and win in close games. Right. Cause it feels like the playoff games are going to be close, but yeah. what, what kind of went wrong for Washington in the second half to why they just weren't dominating teams the way that they did in the first half. Well, there's no doubt, right? Like the schedule got pretty tough and I know this PAC 12 does not get a lot of respect uh, on the national level. And, and certainly there's not going to be a PAC 12 anymore. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, you can kind of get that. But when I tell you that Oregon state, Oregon um, at USC, Caleb Williams, I, I, I know one of the worst defenses, uh, you know, uh, of all time in this conference, but, you know, uh, I think it's a combination of a lot of things, not making excuses, but uh, we played some really good teams. We had some injuries. And, um, you know, I think you saw us in that Pac-12 championship game as nine-point underdogs against Oregon uh, with everybody back and healthy. Jalen McMillan especially. What a dimension he adds to this offense. Um, you know, you, you saw the potential of this team there again uh, at full force. All right, before we get your prediction that Washington's going to win the Sugar Bowl, I do want to ask you one question about the winemaking process because oh, you sure. and you and your former teammate Dan Marino uh, have some other partners, including your significant others, and uh, y'all are responsible for passing time, the winery passing time, and uh, in talking about the, uh, the the meet the team and what you're all about on the website. Uh, you guys say, look, we had to come together, and this has been a long process to figure out of how to make great Washington State wine. So what's the key to making a great Washington State wine? Well, it always starts with the fruit, you know, and, and the Washington wine industry is only about 40, 50 years old, mm. you know, compared to most places around the world. And and really, as our vineyards have matured, uh, I mean, we're just getting into the groove. Um, we've been, we've had so much fun with this. I mean, it's been over a decade we've been doing this. When Danny and I started it in 2012, you know, it was, oh, let's make, you know, three or 400 cases of a Washington cab, see where this thing can go and just kind of have some fun with it. And now it's turned into a full-time, you know, we're making about 3,000 cases a year. We have an awesome club. We ship wine to all, all over America, uh, including Texas. And Dick Vermeule is in the business, my old coach in Kansas City. Yeah. Um, you know, he tells me, he goes, Damon, my my favorite place to sell our, our you know, Sonoma Napa cabs is Texas country clubs. These people love football. They love their steak and they love a big cab. So, you know, as passing time grows and evolves, uh, you know, we're coming to a country club near you there in Texas. But uh, in the meantime, go check out our website, passingtime.com. You know, we, we just released our our latest uh, cabs Uh, not to toot my own horn, but if I don't, nobody will. We just got our first hundred point uh, score 
uh, from the International Wine Report with wow. our 2021 or 2021 Horse Seven Hills Cabernet. Uh, we make about 500 cases of that a year. It's our flagship. Uh, we can send some your way. It'd be fun. We can get it to you right away in time for the Sugar Bowl. Drink a little Washington Cabernet and watch your Longhorns take on the dog. So uh, hit us up, Damon at PassingTime.com, or just visit the website, order today. Uh, we'll send it your way. I am definitely ordering some. We are yeah, big wine yeah. fans in my family. So uh, I'm, we're, we're going to be in New Orleans for the game, so we may not have it by then, but uh, we will be drinking some passing time wine in the new year. All right, last question, Damon. Uh, yeah. Washington, Texas should be a high-scoring game, should be an exciting game. What's your prediction for what ultimately happens on Monday night? Right? Like, it should be a high-scoring game. I don't know what the over-under is. What's the over-under? I'm, you guys know? Yeah, it's uh, 63 and a half right now. 63 and a half. You know, sounds about right. Like all of us that think all these fireworks, you know, it always is like the exact opposite, right? These teams come play great defenses. The offenses are, are a little careful and you don't want to screw it up early on. So, um, okay, my prediction, I'm going to say Dogs 35, Longhorns 24. Mm, double digit win for you, Dogs. Yeah, I just feel like I think you're, you guys struggle a little too much on third down in the red zone. And I think like that, 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 that's that's going to be the difference in the game. Okay. Maybe an underrated element to all of this with all the conversations we've had about that. Texas offense has struggled in the red zone, and Washington's defense really tightens up when it matters the most. He is Damon Heward, record-setting quarterback for UW back in the day, uh, eight-year NFL vet as well. These days, he does a bunch of different things around Washington football, Washington sports. That includes as a volleyball dad, and yes, he makes wine as well. <laughs> Go to PassingTime.com to check out the wine. Damon, this has been a real pleasure, man. Thank you so much for the time. Yeah. Today. Thanks, Trey. BK, good chatting with you guys. I'll probably see you on Bourbon Street. All right, coming up, it is the first of a two-segment chat with comedian and musician Reggie Watts on his new book, Great Falls, Montana. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Ellie. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Ellie. Reggie Watts is a longtime musician and comedian who actually passed through Austin a little bit earlier this year, headlining Joe Rogan's comedy Mothership. This summer, he released his first memoir. It's titled Great Falls, Montana, Fast Times, Post-Punk, Weirdos, and A Tale of Coming Home Again. And he joins me now to talk about that and more. Reggie, thank you so much for the time. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, yeah. Just hanging in there, having fun, I think. <laughs> That's good to hear. So uh, your book is a fascinating one. I guess the starting point is this. You're not an old guy by any means. So uh, why did you decide to uh, write your first memoir, which came out a little bit earlier this year? Uh, Gosh, I don't know. Well, because mainly because I wanted to uh, get my high school experience um, documented so that I might be able to make a movie or a series from it. How is that coming along so far? That part of the process it hasn't really started, but uh, but you know it's uh, it's just a matter of getting it together. I think it'll start. I think we'll, we'll take it more seriously in the new year. Gotcha. Well, good luck with that. Now you come from a very unique background: African American father who's in the U.S. military, and as you put it, a very French mother, someone who uh, embraces uh, or embraced her Frenchness. They met overseas. You were born overseas before your family eventually moves to the title city of Great Falls, Montana, when you were around nine, I believe. Though your mom, uh, mom maintained that uh, 
fierce French spirit. She insisted that you become American citizen uh, as soon as y'all moved to the U.S., which you did. And that kind of empowered you as the shy kid to try and branch out a little bit in your neighborhood. So immediately after you get a, your U.S. citizenship, you uh, try and go knock on some neighbor's door across the street from where y'all live to play with some of the neighborhood kids, which, of course, leads to you encountering your first dose of good old-fashioned American racism. Uh, your mom was pissed. She gave the guy who uh, who said some ugly things to you an earful, whereas your dad had a, bit, a different bit of advice. He actually said, you need to match uh, word for word and occasionally fist for fist, but uh, that's not your nature. It actually led to you uh, conducting what you consider to be your very first social hack. What exactly was that? Well, yeah. I mean, I mo- yeah, we moved over there when I was like four um in montana and it was like you know i had the i i used to just kind of entertain my parents uh and parents friends when we when we were in europe and so i just kind of did the same thing you know just kind of became an entertaining guy uh and uh people generally tend to like that and then they kind of forget about being mean to you uh as easily you give one of your first true friends, a guy named John Thomas, credit with helping you really to discover how interesting the world around you was, even in some place like Great Falls. How did he help you out here? Uh, he, you know, he was a he was an imaginative guy. He loved science fiction like I did. And um, he, I don't know, we, we kind of gravitated to, towards each other because of our, our, our collective love of science fiction. And... Um, you know, he was listening to a lot of really strange music, you know, that really strange to me at the time. And he would play it constantly all the time. And it, and it took a while for me to, to kind of realize, oh, this is great, you know, because it was like Art of Noise, which was really weird. And The Smiths, which sounded, I don't know, just very different to like top 40 radio that I was listening at the time. And so, um, yeah, he, he just kind of kept with it and kept exposing me to stuff. And, and eventually I, the band that kind of opened me up to that whole world of music was the smithereens, which was only slightly related to post-punk. They were more like a kind of like a post beatnik kind of, kind of music. Um, and, um, anyways, I fell in love with those guys. And then of course there were like really hot girls that listened to, (laughs) really great uh you know industrial music and i was like oh i love this music and these girls love this music too this is this is definitely what i like you give john a lot of credit in your evolution you also give credit to one of your teachers around that time mrs lydiard how did she really help you come out of your social shell well uh lydiard was Lydiard was, um, I mean, she was my orchestra teacher. I mean, she was my only <laughs> string teacher, uh, throughout, uh, junior high and, uh, through high school. Um, she was the one who taught me violin. She's the one who, um, led the orchestra, uh, put together the music programs for, you know, uh, East junior high and great falls high. So she was just always around. Um, I mean, she was basically just great at keeping together because she was working with all these kids that were all over the place. I couldn't imagine what that job would have been like if kids had cell phones. I think it would have been absolutely impossible. But yeah, she just kind of hung in there and believed in me and and put up with me because I had like a little bit of a fiery disposition 
uh, I would talk back a lot and didn't like authority very much, but I hung in there and she hung in there with me. And that was pretty important. Yeah, I uh, relate to this book on several levels from childhood. The uh, rebel streak is certainly one and not having the closest relationship with my dad. And maybe it's a generational thing with your dad. It probably had something to do uh, with the fact that he had served in the military as well. But y'all didn't have the closest relationship. He was closed off. You were obviously uh, not one who was attuned to authority necessarily, which might strike somebody who had been in the military uh, poorly, let's just say. But you maintain that something actually changed for the worse with regards to all of that around the time you were 13. What changed and what happened as a result? Gosh, yeah, I mean, I, I think it was like a combination of me, you know, coming of age and uh, asserting my individuality and my father's upbringing of being kind of a, a bit of a disciplinarian and just kind of coming to a head where I just wasn't into doing stuff that I was supposed to be doing because people were telling me to do it. So when my dad would ask me to do stuff, I started becoming a little bit more resistant to it and questioning why, you know, why do I need to be doing that? And like... I don't know. It was just kind of the perfect storm, you know, and he was since he grew up in a disciplinarian style, he didn't really know what to do. Like he didn't have any skills to, you know, it was either like you do what I say or like, you know, that's that's you being good. But someone questioning why uh, that is something that he didn't know what to do with. Well, I'm with you, by the way, and this is something that I questioned as a kid like you did. The excuse because I said so is BS. Like, let's have a conversation here so I can understand why it is that you want me to do something that you do. Like, even as a parent of a nine and seven year old right now, I try really hard because it's easy to lean on that excuse. But I try really hard to actually explain to them to let them know, because at that point, it's not they're not always compliant. But you're going to get a higher percentage of compliance if you can help them understand where you're coming from. 100%. Hundred percent. I, I mean, I always appreciated that. I mean, I still, I still do. Like, even as an adult, like for instance, there was a, there was an air. I was on, I was on a flight, and uh, you know, when everybody was boarding, they were putting their stuff in the overhead, and the flight attendant, she said, um, "I need you to put your luggage this way." Um, because or wheels out or whatever it was, wheels in, wheels out, whatever. I forget what it is. And she's like, because it, uh, because the wheels take up extra space in the back and um, and the shape of the thing allows for more, um, doesn't allow for the suitcase to go deeper so we can't close it. And so she explained why. And I was like, that's that's the, that's the key. That's the secret. It, it doesn't always work. Like some people are just like, you know, but most of the time, uh, intelligent people enjoy it when you, instead of saying like, do this now, it's, it's like, do it. Could you do this? Because blah, 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 blah. And then, then it feels like, Oh, that makes sense. I think I'll do that. Cause that, that's a good reason why I should, you know? So the next time I'm sitting next to somebody who decides it's a good idea to take their shoes and socks off mid flight, oh rather God. than saying, will you please put your freaking socks and shoes back on? I should say, will you please put your freaking socks and shoes back on? Because it's freaking disgusting. Thank disgusting. You. Yes. A hundred percent. That's much, much better. They'll do it immediately and they won't trip at all. So you and your dad have a uh, sort of final blowout that leads to him leaving the house altogether and moving back to Cleveland. And you do end up, visiting him, which we'll get to here in just a little bit, but you conducted a fascinating social experiment on the eve of starting high school, really inspired by the breakfast club. What exactly did you set out to do upon entering high school? 
I was in junior high, and I think John Hughes's first movie it might have been his first movie or one of his first movies. Um, uh, Sixteen Candles came out, and that kind of primed me for his aesthetic and his style. And then when The Breakfast Club uh, came out, it just blew me away. I was uh, it represented this romantic notion of classism on a teenage scale and i identified with you know a few of those characters and i loved all of the characters i thought that they were all interesting and that was the whole thing about breakfast club it's like that they were all there for a reason and uh they were all young and they had they shared a lot in common with with one another uh and and i thought that that was exciting i thought it was really cool to I thought to myself, maybe in high school, I could try to become all of those social classes. And uh, yeah, and so I kind of did. I kind of did it. Like the the first year I was like nothing. I played sports. I played football, but I wasn't really a jock. I wasn't, I was just kind of a guy with his two friends, his wrestler friend and his weirdo friend. And then, um, then I got into student student council um and was a part of that and throwing parties for the school and then i was you know i was also an orchestra an orc dork i guess we never called it that back then but <laughs> but uh was an orchestra um i was in art school as an ap art i was uh you know i was basically all of those things i was the criminal <laughs> i was the i was the jock i was kind of the preppy guy for a little bit i was um the weirdo um, I was the dork, you know, I was, I was all those things. And, and, and I loved it because I, I really, it really made me feel like I was living inside of a film and I was lucky enough to have those John Hughes films come out exactly at the times that I was living. Um, so it was pretty cool. He is comedian and musician Reggie Watts. The new book is Great Falls, Montana, Fast Times, Post-Punk Weirdos, and A Tale of Coming Home Again. You can get it now wherever books are sold. Coming up, we're going to delve more into the stand-up side of things on the other side. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Ellie. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Ellie. One more segment with comedian and musician Reggie Watts. His new book is Great Falls, Montana, Fast Times, Post-Punk Weirdos, and A Tale of Coming Home Again. Admission time for me, Reggie. I am uh, drawn to the comedy side of your story. I'm a big fan of stand-up, and I have the pleasure of speaking with a lot of really talented stand-up comedians who are passing through Austin. You were in Austin not too long ago, headlining at the Mothership. We may talk about that in a sec. First, though, why does Eugene Merriman get quite a bit of credit for the start of your comedy career? Yeah, I mean, Eugene was, uh, he was opening for Stella, which was a three-man sketch group that was on tour. And they were, I guess, also selling their DVD that had all their shorts that they had made. And they were former members of the state. I think most of them, except for, I don't think Showalter was actually in the state, but I might be wrong. Um, But anyways, they were on tour and I fell in love with the state, or at least uh, Wet Hot American Summer. I fell in love with the Stella Shorts because of a friend who had moved to New York and was exposed to them and brought him back to Seattle. And when they came through to tour in Seattle, Eugene Merman was opening and this uh, experimental artist, this performance artist that I befriended through the contemporary dance scene in Seattle. He's from the East Coast, but he was working with a dance group. I befriended him and he told me about uh, Eugene because he'd gone to college with Eugene and how he had a comedy night out there and that, you know, he was opening for Stella and that, um, 
you know, he could introduce me. And so when they came to town, they had a, there was a DVD signing at Scarecrow Video. And when I finally got up to them, the three of them, Michael Showalter, Michael Ian Black, and David Wayne, Michael Showalter recognized me. It's funny, I just saw him yesterday at lunch when I was talking about this very story to these guys that I might be working with um, on a film. And he just walked by. It was, and he stopped. It was. I was like, "What? This is impossible." So this is crazy that we're. And he's kind of showing up again. But Michael Showalter recognized me from a gig that I did in New York uh, and pronounced my band's name right, which no one ever, ever no one ever does. Because why would you? But uh, and I was like shocked. I was like, "What? Why does this mastermind comedian know my band?" And then, uh, and then I was like, oh, "I'll come to your show later." And he's like, "Great." And so then I went to the show, met Eugene, and Eugene was like, "I have this comedy night in uh, New York. If you're ever out there." give me a give me a text and um i'd love to have you on the show and so i ended up going out to new york not too long after that to work with a band um as a singer and and songwriter and i i showed up at the at the gig i did my stupid little comedy <laughs> comedy stuff and uh everyone really dug it immediately i just found a new family like instantaneously and so eugene was very warm about that and also i he introduced me to his agent, his booking agent, and she became my booking agent. We went to Fringe Festival together. We were roommates for the Fringe Festival in 2007. So he was kind of a big part of my uh, beginning years or n- new beginning years of stand-up. You've had quite the unique path in comedy. And uh, amongst the highlights, that Richard Branson story is hilarious. I know it's more of a footnote than anything else, but uh, what a, a bizarre place to perform so, stand-up comedy but you spent much of 2010 opening for conan o'brien on his live nationwide tour which you admit to uh to getting quite a bit of time with conan backstage as well what did he teach you about comedy reggie i would say the thing that he taught me most was how not how not to be um i think uh conan is one of the i, I always call him a good king uh he never talked down anybody, never treated anybody um, unfairly. He would definitely razz people in kind of an aggressive way, but everyone knew, you know, that he was, he was kidding. He was very clear about that. So um, there was definitely some of that, but like he, he was always good natured and uh, treated everybody very well. And he, he didn't bother with security. Like he didn't have like security guards or anything like that. He just, was a, he's kind of a of the people guy. So when, you know, he'd hang out outside or when we'd be transferring from, you know, the venue to the bus or whatever, and there'd be people, he'd always take time to hang out with them um, and have conversations. And I think that's the thing. And he, he did everything himself. He did his own makeup before going on stage. Um, he was just a very DIY guy and, and a, a weird dude, but also very personable. Also, he grew up Catholic. So we would we would talk about like Catholic stuff um it was kind of funny but uh yeah he he was just a cool dude man i i i'm really lucky that i got to go on tour uh with him and uh but i would say that's probably the biggest thing is just don't be a precious (laughs) dum-dum I did want to end with a more serious note on the book. Before that, though, I uh, did want to uh, rewind and ask you about the comedy Mothership because you did headline there not too long ago. It's obviously been getting rave reviews from audience and comedians alike since it opened in late March. What was your experience like of working the Mothership? Um, 
Yeah, I mean, I, I Joe had me come by <clears throat> before I performed, like many, many months before that. And uh, I got to see it, you know, a tour of it and was just totally impressed. It's it's the it's a comedy club that, you know, that a comedian it's like a dream comedy club that a com comedian would want to build. If a comedian could build a comedy club, that's the comedy club that you would build. So structurally, it was sick, like the way it was laid out, everything, the way it functions, the lighting system in the green room is so cool. It just keeps everybody on time, you know, like when you're about to go up and you can see video of both rooms happening in the green room. There's like tons and tons of great THC products. It's it's it was it was pretty great. And for me, I was a little worried because it's oh, it's the South, you know, and it's like, oh, no, I can't you know be as weird or, or you know or something like that. i was just like i was a little worried so a lot of a lot of my sets i would i would spend probably half an hour talking about stealth coatings uh <laughs> on military aircraft and like the b-21 raider <laughs> it, was, it was ridiculous but that actually did work so, so i would talk about like truck suspensions and stuff like that um but you know once once people know you're you know, you're there for them to have a good time. They're, they're, they're fine. And I, I really didn't have anything to worry about. But the audiences were great. The room was awesome. Um, sound was perfect. Yeah, I really, it's it was an amazing experience. And also I got to see Joe perform some stand-up, which I'd never seen him do live. Hmm. And he blew me away. Um, he's a great stand-up. I, you know, I, I knew he must have been a great stand-up, but also he could have been just a guy that like got into a podcast and got too comfortable, you know, it could have been, but he's an awesome comedian. And I, I wish that people could see his live show because it explained, he went into a whole thing about him and like anti-vax stuff where he was like, why would you trust a guy that made people eat bull's penises or whatever, uh, it, you know, on a TV show about medical advice. He's like, I'm not a doctor. I never asked anybody to trust me. You know, like that little section alone would have like assuaged so many people's like, that's not cool, man. Or, you know, or, or you know, like that's not responsible. You know, I, I saw that. I was like, well, that makes, why don't, why don't you just put that online? That's just like, <laughs> this is like completely takes down the pressure, you know? Um, and so people understand who you are. You're, you're a comedian you know and you're curious about the world and your opinion changes uh when you get more information about stuff and i and so anyways it was it was a great experience and he was uh, just an amazing host i think that was part of a bit that had to do with prince harry and i love the uh the psychedelic element of that bit too but people are gonna have to wait for him to put it out on yeah. video or streaming to uh to find out more all right last thing now reggie returning to the book for this final question uh i want to thank you for sharing such heartfelt sentiments and memories regarding your mom and how important she was to you. And also you really coping with the idea of her passing years before it actually happened. Now she did pass away a few years ago and my condolences to you for that. What is your lasting memory of her? Um, you know, she, we, you know, we had like a weird relationship in that she was, um, you know, she was from a generation, I guess, I guess she would be a, a boomer, I think, something like that. Um, she was born in 1938. Um, she was of an older generation that, um, you know, fought, she had to fight a lot all of her life. She was a, she was a fighter and she fought for her rights as a French citizen, you know, against the Germans as a little girl and like her family dealing with that and the aftermath of that and the reconstruction 
she was a redhead, you know, so people would like make fun of her for that. She protected her brother, who her mother was she had a terrible relationship with her mother, so she had to fight with her mother and protect her brother against their mother. And then she met my dad and then, you know, had to fight for the perception of a white woman being with a black man at that right time when civil rights movement was, was happening in the United States in 60, 69, 68. And then moving to Montana, which is like, it's, I wouldn't say like Montana was like the worst place to move because it, it, it had racism, but it wasn't like institutionalized racism that happens in the, in the South, which has a much different relationship to it. Montana's like, they have racism, but there's no history uh, of it really um, functionally. And so it was there, but it was like much, much lighter <laughs> version, if that makes any sense. Diet but racism, still... huh? What's that? Diet racism, huh? Yeah, yeah, diet racism, for sure. It was there. It could have been bad, but my mom was like very ferocious about it and yeah. would get up in people's faces. And so I'd say that the thing that I, the lasting thing is that she was a fighter and she fought for people that she loved and um, and stood up for people that she thought needed uh, to be stood up for. And she was very equitable in that way. And yeah, she didn't stop, man. She was a hard worker and a fighter, you know, and that's something that fuels me. That's, I think that's why I can do so much, you know, why I can like do a gig over here, then fly over here and do a thing. You know, it's like that, that working attitude that she had. I think that that's what I, I got from her and, uh, and just treating people fairly. We were all appreciative of that. He is Reggie Watts, internationally renowned musician, comedian, and writer. Give him a follow on Instagram, at Reggie Watts, and make sure to check out his excellent new book. Came out, I want to say this summer. It's called Great Falls, Montana, Fast Times, Post-Punk Weirdos, and A Tale of Coming Home Again. Reggie, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this superb book. Oh, man, my absolute pleasure. It was a great conversation. Right, another show is in the books. Thank you so much for tuning in. We'll be back tomorrow at 6. In the meantime, have yourself a great rest of the night and hook them. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Elling.